over the last year, you know, with George Floyd and, you know, just all of the injustices that we've experienced. How are these young people learning from that and taking notes, not just from their own experiences, but notes from past experiences and creating a pathway towards continuing this fight for justice? Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is Katanya Raby. Katanya is a policy advisor in the office of the mayor for the city of Chicago. She is an urban planner, artist, and activist. Katanya is an at-large board member of the executive committee of the Illinois chapter of the American Planning Association, a board member of Public Narrative, and executive director of the Al Raby Foundation, an organization she co-founded in honor of her grandfather, a Chicago-based civil rights leader. Katanya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Let's start with the Al Raby Foundation. Tell us about the man behind the organization and how the foundation came to be. Yeah, this Al Raby is my grandfather. Uh, he was a powerhouse in the city, very well known um, for his work in civil rights. Uh, he started out as a, a young man that was kind of troubled youth and didn't really um have a lot of direction, but he wound up making his way through because he started to recognize a lot of the, you know, injustices that were taking place in his community of Woodlawn. And uh, he decided that he wanted to to do something about that. And he got involved in, you know, the civil rights movements and just kind of learned from many of the, the civil rights giants that were, um, you know, kind of starting some work around that. And he started to make his own path. He went from being a sixth grade dropout to be, be you know, going back to school and teaching himself how to read and um, then later becoming a teacher that, and, and really focused on helping his pupils to become more um, grounded in their education. But he also saw that there were a lot of injustices in the school system. So he, you know, saw that there was this, Willis wagon situation where there were these wagons that were used were and, and their schools were overpopulated. So they started to have these wagons uh, added to their school grounds instead of providing more, you know, actual built facilities or desegregating the school so that students wouldn't be overcrowded. Um, and so his fight was against that that segregation. And so that's where he kind of got his his big start in the civil rights space. Um, later, he got, became involved in the housing movement, uh, looking at the housing issues like redlining and unfair ho- housing practices and, you know, contract sales. And he led that fight and invited Dr. King to the city to, to really help uh, change the landscape for housing. Um, and, and really, uh, it was the inspiration behind 
the Fair Housing Act. So he and and then he, he moved on to being Harold Washington's campaign manager and uh, being handpicked by President Carter to lead the Peace Corps in Guyana. So he's his story is one that is super Chicago focused, very much important to the fabric of the city. And so my work with the Al Raby Foundation is to really highlight that. And thinking about how we can connect generations. Uh, one thing that I found through my research of Al is that people in my generation aren't as familiar. Um, and so it's, I have been wanting to make sure that I'm connecting our elders with our youth and, and helping that story to continue and that his, making sure that his legacy, um, isn't forgotten. You know, his, his work isn't forgotten. Um, and so that's that's one other thing that the organization really focuses on is having these kinds of civil rights conversations with young people and helping them to learn about Albert, but also learn about their own ways that they connect with people in the civil, you know, how they're making their own paths in the civil rights space, thinking about the events of, you know, over the last year, you know, with George Floyd and, you know, just all of the injustices that we've experienced. How are these young people learning from that and taking notes, not just from their own experiences, but notes from past experiences and creating a pathway towards continuing this fight for justice? And then we also have a scholarship component that we're hoping to build out in partnership with Al Raby High School and uh, Chicago State University. So those are a few things that we're working on um, with that organization. Very exciting. Well, from what I've read, he was kind of a, a humble, I don't want to say shy necessarily, but more of a behind the scenes kind of guy. So does that present issues in preserving the history, uncovering it and preserving it? It does, does very much uh, present issues. We, in doing this research, there are tons of um, magazine and newspaper articles um, lots of things that point to his, you know, being part of some of these things and leading some of these efforts or causing a ruckus because, you know, Mayor Daley did not like him at all. Uh, the first Mayor Daley. And but there's not a lot about him as a person or him as um you know, just kind of his leadership, like specifics about his leadership, because he was very private. Um, even, you know, just as a member of the family, there are some things that we're, you know, constantly uncovering, you know, as my mom recounts, you know, her childhood and her experience, you know, it, there's things that we're like, oh, wow, for real? Oh, that's why this, you know, we, you know, so we're really working to connect the dots um, in our family and then also just with all of the research that we've been doing, you know, looking through, you know, news clippings and like digging deep in the uh, Chicago History Museum and the libraries and, you know, all of these different sources. So it, it has been a um, a challenge in some ways um, to really paint a clear picture of this man. Um, but we are really wanting to make sure that we do this and we want to do it right. And we want to make sure that that we are capturing who he was through these stories that we've been able to 
gather through our conversations with some of the elders that were involved or closely tied to his work. And so we, you know, I've been very fortunate to be able to connect with so many people who are still with us, who are willing to share um, everything that they know or connect us to other people who may know him or who who knew him. And um, it's been it's been a very interesting ride. And I'm definitely not like a historian <laughs> um, and this type of research is is new to me, but um, it's really been really exciting to be able to connect with groups and, you know, organizations that do this work all the time and they're, that they're, they've been willing to really help us to uncover a lot of things that we didn't know previously. Yeah, and it's kind of an interesting moment in time, as you said, you're trying to make sure and connect with elders, his peers, um, you know, in the last few months alone, right? Two big movies about Chicago of this era, the the one documenting the trial of the Chicago 7-8, and then Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, and so the fact that we still have folks who can speak to the history as they lived it and not lose sight of those stories um, is an important endeavor. Would you say his life and work influenced your chosen profession as an urban planner? Oh, absolutely. There is no doubt about it. And it's funny because when I learned about planning, I was a junior in college and had no idea that I would find um, this field and be so interested in it. Um, you know, at growing up on the South side of Chicago, I never had, or my family, you know, like people that I know in general just don't really have a hand in what happens with the city, you know? Um, and so, uh, you know, to have to be able to look at my grandfather in this way and say, hey, he was able to make some moves. You know, I wanted that, but I didn't know because he was, he passed when I was six. So I didn't know how to approach any of this stuff. And nobody in my family knew either, you know, so I kind of just stumbled upon urban planning and didn't realize at the time how much of a connection that this profession had to my grandfather's work, you know, because growing up, you know, I just knew that our name was a famous name, you know, locally. And I, I knew that he did civil rights work and I knew he was friends with Martin Luther King, but that was kind of the extent of it. Like I didn't realize how deeply involved he was in actually making policy changes that impact our built environment in the way that he did. Um, so to to be able to look to him for inspiration at this point in my career is huge. Um, you know, I never, when I started in planning, I initially wasn't interested in housing. Like <laughs> I just wanted to do, you know, city design. I wanted to do, you know, kind of more broad city planning, master plans and things like that. And so to be able to have had the experience of being in the housing space and thinking about and, and walking the halls of City Hall and being in that space where my grandfather was and doing similar work to what he was doing was so powerful. Like my first day there, I got so emotional just because I was thinking like my granddaddy was here. He was, you know, leading a lot of the efforts here. He was making sure that that Mayor Washington 
his administration was, you know, doing the things that they needed to do to to make sure our city was more equitable. And um, that's powerful. And, and he did it quietly. He didn't, you know, he wasn't boastful. He he's, you know, he was just a really all around good guy. And anybody that I've talked to about him, you know, there's nothing but love for him. Like I've never heard of anyone that's never, like nobody has ever said anything negative. And I don't know if that's because they don't want to say it to me because I'm his granddaughter, but like, like it's just, really amazing to hear the the stories that folks have about him. And I'll say one quick story about a um, really amazing lady that works at the city currently. She's, um, she actually is one part of the admin team there. And she, uh, when I first got there, she learned who I was related to. She was so excited. She's like, oh, wait, your granddaddy was so fine. I just <laughs> love <laughs> I just love, love, love your granny. He was so, so sweet. I just loved, loved all his work. And he just was a hot man to look at, girl. So she, you know, I was all, every time I would, you know, pass by her desk, I would kind of joke with her. And, you know, she's got a picture of Luther Vandross on her desk. And she's like, well, I need a picture of your granddad too. So I got to, I've been planning on getting her this picture for the longest. So I got to make sure I do that. Uh, But she's, you know, just kind of hearing little stories like that. Even the people who've never actually like, interacted with her because she was I think too young at the time to be working in the city while he was here I'm not sure but she I don't think she was there in that time frame but just you know hearing these little stories like I've heard so many people who have approached me over the years um and just wanted to share their story and that's why the Raby Foundation is so important to make sure that we're capturing not just what's been you know documented already but What's in the hearts and minds of Chicagoans about this man and the work that he did here? That's very powerful. Thanks for sharing a bit about your grandfather and the organization. I want to revisit another part of your bio. You are an artist. I want to hear a little bit more about that and how it influences your work as a planner. Yeah, that's a great question. I've been a very artistic, like visually focused person my whole life. Um, My mom knew that I could draw and paint well. She like was like, this kid's got something. (laughs) So she enrolled me in like the School of Art, the Art Institute um, for like a summer. And I was like the youngest person there because it was really an adult course. I don't know how she worked the magic to get me in this course, but I was painting with like all of these like older people. Um, And she also noticed that I had an interest in architecture because I would draw floor plans all the time and didn't really know what I was doing, but I was interested in the way that buildings were made. So she enrolled me in other programs like IIT and, you know, uh, IIT had a um, youth architecture program at the time. And um, so she always tried to make ways for me to be able to connect with my creativity And uh, I, you know, I'm always tinkering with things, always making stuff any chance that I get. So as an artist, I've done primarily paintings um, and a lot of art instruction. I do a lot of upcycled artwork. I I really appreciate upcycled work. I do murals. So I've done uh, many murals in Chicago public schools. I've done murals. 
you know, in different cities, um, just because this is just my opportunity to leave a mark on a city or a space. Um, and so I, with, with my love of the arts, I've always been a huge fan of placemaking opportunities. Uh, so any chance that I get to either paint something or connect with a community using art and then also like thinking about how this art is going to transform this community space is just, you know, kind of my sweet spot. I really, really enjoy being able to do that. Placemaking. I, I took a placemaking course while at UIC and um it was like the best thing ever. Like I didn't realize until that course how well my interest in the arts connected to the basics of planning, helping communities to recognize their assets in this way and, and helping them to build upon that um, is, is huge. And so um, I think placemaking a lot of times can be more important than doing analysis work. <laughs> it's like you, if, if the, you know, a community can't really see, you know, or fully grasp an analysis report in the same way that they can something that's like physically there that is altering their space and helping them to think about the future and think about what the potential opportunities are that exist in this particular space. So I just, kind of gravitate towards the arts. Um, and I don't get to do it often in, in, in the positions that I've had most recently, but um, I'm really hoping to be able to dive into that more in the near future. Well, and if I understand correctly, you also are working on your drone pilot license? <laughs> yes, um, I... Love. So I, I got into, you know, the drone space as part of my master's project. And while I didn't wind up using my imagery for the project I wound up doing, I did really appreciate being able to use, like learning how to do kind of spatial analysis from having these aerial, like just kind of connecting that imagery to some of the mapping that I was doing. So I was, you know, kind of working on, you know, learning, I was learning GIS and I got super excited about like drone technology and, you know, Esri was coming up with all these really amazing like drone products that connect to, you know, um, in the imagery. And at the time, I had a little bit more access because I was a student. I could, you know, get some of this stuff for pretty cheap or free. Um, now, <laughs> I'm not able to really access the Esri products in the same way. So I've had to kind of restructure my thinking around like aerial photography and just kind of focusing on analyzing things in a diff without using those fancier tools. And, and the drone itself is pretty fancy. So to be able to, you know, take a flight and, you know, assess a community from the sky, not, you know, and I know that we've got lots of imagery that we can download, and but it's not as current as, you know, depending on the what you're looking at, like, and so to be able to just throw a, a drone up in the sky and, and, and do that kind of assessment is really, really awesome. And um, I was learning a little bit about like ground cover and, you know, kind of analyzing things like that. Um, and I'll admit it's been a while since I've actually, you know, performed any of my 
drone analysis, but I hope to also get back into that and, you know, really work towards this license. It's just a lot, <laughs> a lot going on right now. Um, and, you know, my focus has shifted a little bit, but um, I will say that being a drone pilot as a planner is really, really dope. And especially if you're working in communities that you can really look at the aerial footage and help you to like see where inequities lie. I was inspired by some um, aerial photography that I had seen in Johannesburg where there's a, a clear and very distinct difference between community areas. And it, it's like a stark line between, you know, where the more affluent folks live versus the not affluent. And it was just so striking to me that I felt like I needed to do something similar here, just kind of like looking at it. And it's not as clear here, but um, I mean, it's clear in a different kind of way, you know, looking at vacant lots and, you know, versus, you know, density and like how it's being used and, and all of that. So, you know, those are some of the things I was very much interested in, in studying. Um, but again, I had to kind of shift my focus to other things, but uh, I'd love to go back to, to doing that kind of study at some point in the future. So what has been keeping you busy these days? So currently in the mayor's office, um, I've been uh, working to develop the uh, ETOD policy plan. Um, so myself and my colleagues in the mayor's office, along with folks at Elevated Chicago, have been leading the effort um, on really like getting that uh, out the door. And it has been a labor of love. It's an amazing document. Um, and it really speaks to the community effort around really bringing that same, the same type of investment that's happening on the North and the Northwest sides around transit on, you know, North red line, Brown line, purple line, yellow line, like bringing that same energy to the South and the West sides. And so, um, you know, it's been a lot to learn because um, policy is not my 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 space of comfort so i've you know really grown in that area but um to to really take a hard look at this data and and work with this amazing team on um lifting up these policies and really paving the way for change um in the built environment in this way is huge um so that's been exciting um, and if people aren't familiar, just what is ETOD and maybe the significance of having the city issue a policy plan for it? Yeah. So ETOD is Equitable Transit Oriented Development. So most cities that have transit have some type of transit oriented development zoning process around those stations. Um, and so, you know, Chicago's got quite a transit system as well as a bus system. And so um, what we've taken a hard look at is where development occurs along these lines. And if the develop then what we found was that development has been um, overwhelmingly occurring on the, the north side where it's more affluent. Um, it's um it's not as many people of color as there are on the South and the West side. And so <clears throat> we're looking at this, you know, through a racial equity lens and trying to figure out why 
I mean, of course, we kind of have a good sense of why, but um, but just really trying to look, we were, you know, assessing why TOD development is more prominent on the north side than it is on the south and the west sides. And so through this process, it's been about a almost a two year process to get this plan um, off the ground. And it's not finalized yet. So that's to come. But the draft is available um, on the city's website. And, um, you know, so taking those opportunities and looking at the zoning and looking at how development occurs and figuring out how we can look at the stations that are on the south and the west sides and push that development in those those directions. Um, you know, and so thinking about also how it connects to other city initiatives like Invest Southwest and which is another um, city initiative that really focuses on community areas, specifically 10 community areas that are um, primarily black and brown that have experienced the highest amount of disinvestment in the city. Um, and so this program kind of aligns with that. Um, and but looking specifically at where the transit stops are within those areas as well. So, yeah, that's ETOD for you. And the other work that I've been doing is with the qualified allocation plan um, with the Department of Housing. So the qualified allocation plan is a basically a set of instructions or guidelines for developers that are looking to receive uh, low-income tax credits for developing low-income housing in the city. And so the city of Chicago is one of three cities um, that has its own allocation because you, the rest of the country has, you know, the states allocate these funds. So it's a federal, through HUD, the money comes down to the states in these three cities um, and they disperse these funds to developers to help develop low-income housing. And um, these credits really do help to contribute to low income housing because if this these credits weren't available we we would be in a pretty dire situation when it comes to that so we looked at this process of that developers go through to apply um we looked at the criteria looked at you know the history of the QAP qualified allocation plan and through a racial equity lens to help us to better understand um, what are the shortcomings of this, this process and how can we make sure that it's more equitable in the end and also considering community wealth building opportunities for residents of these properties. So I went through a process of developing this, this framework and uh, set up a few um, focus groups of five different types of stakeholders. So we looked at, you know, folks who are in the policy space. We looked at housing advocates. Um, we looked at residents, syndicators or funders. So those are, you know, the banks that the credits pass through to the developers and then the developers themselves. And so we invited these different groups to have these conversations um, with us, you know, opening up this very new space of equity from, you know, from a government standpoint. Um, and you just kind of having these candid conversations with them about what their thoughts are in terms of uh, how this process works 
And it has been one of the most eye-opening experiences. Um, and I am so grateful to have been able to lead this process. And um, just working with my colleagues on this has been awesome. We were, had, were fortunate to have um, to partner with with uh, enterprise community partners. Um, they did a lot of the analysis for this work to kind of really help us to give us get a sense of the landscape of low-income housing in the city and, you know, kind of thinking about, you know, where people are moving to and how, you know, just really get, getting a comprehensive look at that. Um, and, and that report is actually almost ready to be released. So we're looking at mid to late March, but um, very exciting work as well. So I'm just very fortunate to be deeply involved in the equity space. And that was also um, part of, I was a Chicago United for Equity fellow during 2020. And so as my, as a fellow, um, this was my project to work on this uh, racial equity impact assessment. So that was a year-long fellowship? Correct. So I became a fellow in January of 2020, and the fellowship ended in December of 2020. Um, and this is a newer organization that offers fellowships. So I think they've been around since 2017. But um, it's really amazing. It's led by Nikita Brar, um, who led the effort around looking at a school in Chicago, the National Teachers Academy, and trying to look at some racial equity issues that were taking place there. And she developed this curriculum um, and started this this fellowship to get more people on board to learn about racial like the the process of going through a racial equity impact assessment and you know kind of deploying these fellows out into the city to really work with communities and groups on figuring out what what where the gaps are and um so I'm I've been really uh, grateful for that experience and learned so much and gained a lot of new amazing friends so um I I sing its praises. <laughs> well, in Nikita, the, the issue with the National Teachers Academy is they were going to close it. But yes. Nikita was part of an organized movement to keep it open. And it really was down to the wire, but ultimately they prevailed. So I see a theme here with the work of your grandfather and joining an organization like um, the Q Fellowship. Yeah. Oh, wow. I hadn't really thought about that part. But yeah, <laughs> I guess my granddad, um, you know, he has a he's touched so many different areas of my life. It's hard to keep up. But yeah, definitely that that work that Nikita did there was phenomenal. Um. So what were the lessons learned or what advice do you have for folks in the public sector who want to use racial equity impact analyses in their work? Mm, oof. <laughs> That's a really good question. I I think that it's not an easy process. I'll say that. Um, it's one that takes time, takes commitment. It takes making sure that you have, as Nikita would say, your A team in place. Because there's a lot of folks that un don't understand why this process is necessary. So you need to have people that can help and continue to advocate for it and, and, and speak um, to um, the reasons why this needs to happen. I think that year 2020, um, you know, just all of the different things that occurred helped 
the world to better see why these things are necessary. Uh, but we still, you know, when you're dealing with um, situations that are um, controlled by government entities or um, have some kind of red tape or bureaucracy around it, it's harder to make racial equity impact assessments work. Um, and I can say that from my experience in working with the city, I am forever grateful for um, Commissioner Navarra, uh, who was the biggest champion for this. Like she saw the vision. She really wanted to make this happen. And she basically like cleared the path. Like and if there anything that was needed to make this thing happen, she made it happen. And so to be able to connect with someone like her and, um, you know, having um, other colleagues in the city that were, you know, totally fighting for this thing was huge. But this is the first time the city of Chicago has ever done this. This is the first REIA on, you know, this type of housing issue ever. So, you know, it's, it's huge. No pressure. <laughs> right. <laughs> like to be able to, you know, step out into a whole new space and then have and, and our city government back it up. I mean, that's huge. And we're hoping that there will be other city departments that will take this on and will be willing to go through the process. But it's definitely not one that um, is easy to do or will turn stuff around overnight. But I, I think that it's possible if you believe in it and you can get those advocates wrapped around you, go for it. And there's lots of um, Chicago United for Equity fellows who are who would probably be willing to join in and help because there's so many amazing alums of the program now um, that are very much interested in seeing equity just kind of poured across the land. So there are people out here that that want to see this happen. And then also being able to work in the mayor's office with Candace Moore, who's our chief equity officer, the first, you know, that's huge. Like having all of these people who believe in equity and really, truly live and breathe it and infuse it into everything that they do. Um, is really making a big difference in our city government. And I'm just grateful to have been part of that. Now, before you worked in the office of the mayor, the city of Chicago, you worked at the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning. Tell us a little bit about your work there. Yeah, um, so I worked for CMAP uh, for about four years. Definitely lots of love for CMAP. Uh, I started as a intern. So I started in May of 2016. And by October 2016, I was working there full time. So <laughs> it was really interesting to kind of turn uh, around as an employee that quickly. I don't think that is a, a regular occurrence there. But I am grateful to have been part of an amazing team. And they really allowed me to grow as a planner and not just as a planner, I started off in community engagement, um, you know, working on the outreach team. And then um, when I got hired, I was like, you know what, I just, I'm getting this degree in planning. I really, really want to do some planning work. And so they were willing to work with me. They, you know, put me on uh, some of the planning team work and I started to you know, really get deep into the planning work. And I'm, I'm so forever grateful for 
um, the leadership there for giving me a chance and, you know, kind of allowing me to explore um, the planning space in that way. And I hadn't even finished grad school yet at that point. So that, you know, that was, that was huge. So um, yeah, loved CMAP, um, had a great experience working on the regional comprehensive plan on 2050, which was huge. Um, You know, that was a, a great experience because I had never considered really working in a regional, like for the MPO, that that's just not something I had thought of doing. But when I got there and learned about what CMAP was doing and the, the impact that regional planning has on the local municipalities, um, you know, I just fell in love with the place. And to be able to touch a plan as large as on to 2050 um, and be deeply involved in that was amazing. To be able to also do community planning work uh, was and, and lead the effort on a couple of uh, those projects was awesome. And then my biggest love with CMAP is FLIP, the Future Leaders in Planning Program. I love that program so much. And it was hard. That was the hardest part about leaving CMAP is leaving that program just because I spent so much time, you know, really kind of restructuring and just kind of thinking, trying to think creatively about different ways to connect with young people, especially Black and Brown youth. Um, Because at the time that I had started, Flip didn't have as many Black, you know, there there were a sprinkling of Black kids and a couple of uh, Latino or Latinx students. And I was like, you know what, we need to figure this out. And so I tapped into some of my previous, you know, network with CPS and the work that I was doing in in that space. And I was like, I need to make this happen. Like, let's get into your school. And I was able to make those connections and get more students into the program. And that was huge. And then also connecting with um, University of Illinois at Chicago, uh, the College of Urban Planning and uh, Public Affairs, um, and, you know, really working with them on developing a pipeline from the FLIP program to their undergraduate program. So those are things that were um, really special to me. And I'm really thankful that I was able to, that CMAP just kind of gave me free reign to be able to do those things. What have you learned about successfully and meaningfully engaging youth? Mm, Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Well, what I did learn is, you know, just thinking about my own childhood and my lack of knowledge around urban planning. Like I had no idea what this was about. Um, and how it impacted me. So to be able to make sure that our young people, especially Black and Brown youth that have not been part of at these tables or their parents haven't been at these tables, like being able to connect with them in that way is 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 everything that I ever dreamed of. You know, to be able to develop a curriculum and, you know, kind of build upon, because I'm not the the founder of FLIP. And there were many, many people that were working on the FLIP program. I did not do this alone at all. It was just to be able to encourage the people around me to continue to push for more equity in the FLIP space, to push for more opportunities to learn about communities of color, to help students who were from more affluent communities to actually be immersed in these spaces and see the differences 
um, was was great. Um, I think about one story where, um, so Flip is set up where we talk about the building blocks of planning and it's scaffolded so that you start off with looking at a site you know, you're thinking about the architecture of the site and just kind of thinking about that one individual space. And as we move through the program, the students are building on that and thinking about how that space connects to others and, you know, from, you know, to the community, to the municipality, to the region. You know, the whole thing with CMAP is you got to make sure you connect it back to the region. So being able to help students to see that through this particular field trip was so dope because they, we, um, I, I wanted them to see some of the disparities. So we took a field trip down to Inglewood to see, to visit the um, freight facility that's uh, on the south side. And um, they gave us a tour. You know, we kind of got to see, you know, how all of this stuff works. And um, then we toured the community around the facility. And, you know, so a lot of the students were starting to make their own thoughts around like this connection to this facility and why the neighborhood, the surrounding community didn't seem to be thriving when they had this multi-billion dollar freight institution. Probably state that, of the art or. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like, you know, Chicago's freight hub of the United States. So like you've got this, this big things in the middle of the community, but the community is clearly disinvested. There's hundreds and hundreds of vacant lots. There's, you know, boarded up properties. There aren't any businesses that are open on the main thoroughfare. So you're not looking at all of that stuff and the students are starting to make some assessments. At this point, I still didn't say anything, um, but we, you know, we, we were talking about it and I was just listening and so we get back to the office and I have to had them watch the documentary, The Area, which is focuses on this community in Inglewood and then also talks about this freight um, company and also talks about eminent domain. And so, you know, this freight company um, went through the process of snatching up all of these properties from families due to eminent domain or using eminent domain. And um, even though it wasn't really warranted, their whole purpose in doing this was so that they could expand the freight yard. Um, and so, you know, in watching this film and watching the families as they were struggling, because they watched the families over the course of about four or five years, um, and it was actually produced by one of the residents of the area, it just kind of watching the students' reactions to this was so fascinating because they were pissed. <laughs> they were like wanting to figure out like, oh, how can we stop this? How can we, you know, reverse this? And then, But by the time we watched the film, it was pretty much said and done. All those homes had been taken down. But to this day, there's still not been any effort to do anything, you know, to, to revitalize that, you know, just justify the reason why this is happening and trying to, I guess, pay reparations to their community in a way that they deserve for that. Um, the freight company wound up not expanding. I can't remember the details why, but I'm pretty sure it's all available online. But like just being able to um, show students that and have help them to start making their own assessments about these kinds of things is is so important as they 
you know, if they're interested in moving into the world of becoming a planner, these are the things you have to think about. You can't just, you know, say, I want to make pretty cities and not think about the social and economic impact that this is going to have. And, um, you know, this kind of stuff happens all the time. But we as planners have to be mindful. And I think a lot of times we'll have, you know, people who are going through planning school who might not have lived in a community like this. Most of the folks who've gone through planning school, like, let's be real. (laughs) Planning is white male dominated. Most of them from the suburbs. I'm pretty sure ain't no project white boys. <laughs> Just saying. And so you got these people who are, you know, coming into communities that they know nothing about and making these plans. And so my whole, you know, desire for the students that I interact with is to make sure that they know that you, this is not how you should operate as a planner. You have to come in um, and listen and not just listen, but actually take what you've heard and make sure that that is the focus of whatever plan or policy that you're looking to put in place. Um, and I think through that exercise, those students got the point and they were able to come to their own conclusions. Like I did not have to, spell it out for them. And so that's the beauty of being able to, you know, have a freedom of teaching. You know, I, I'm all, I'm not, I have no interest in becoming an academic, <laughs> but, you know, if there was ever a space for me to do something like that, I want people to come to the conclusions on their own. And so I'm really, um, you know, that's, that's why I was so excited about being able to lead Flip. So the story you just shared takes place in the Chicago neighborhood of Englewood. We can't talk about Englewood without talking about Tanika Lewis Johnson and her Folded Maps project. I think every planner and frankly, every person needs to hear about this. Most definitely. I absolutely adore Tanika. I think her work is phenomenal. And, you know, I'm kind of like a dork. I'm like following everything that she's doing because she's just so amazing. And she doesn't have a background in planning. She's a photographer, but she, what's so special about her project is that it, it's, it started with the same kind of thoughts that a lot of people have just doing their regular travels across the city. She, you know, as a young person, a lot of us that went to Chicago public schools didn't go to the high schools in our neighborhoods. We wound up going, you know, across the city. And I'm I'm one of them. It took me about an hour to get to school from my house on the bus in the train. And so Tanika was the same way. She would go from the south side, from Inglewood, to where Lane Tech is in Lakeview. And she would, you know, that's a a huge commute. I I think she said it took her about an hour and a half to two hours to get there. Um, And educational inequities in terms of the way that (laughs) our education system is set up in Chicago is a whole other conversation that we have to save for another day. But, um, (laughs) but, you know, just the process of students very much like Tanika and myself having to move from one area of the city to another, you see the stark differences right away. 
Um, anybody who visits the city of Chicago and takes the red line from the south side to the north side, you see the difference between the communities as you're going along, you know, through each stop. So, you know, for her being able to use her art to tell this story, but not just tell a story, but, you know, make it clear that there is something totally wrong here, like really spelling out what segregation looks like in Chicago, spelling out what housing, you know, inequities look like. Um, And it's so, you know, just the visualizations, it's it's just so powerful. Um, I just really have this strong appreciation for everything that she's been doing. And to be, not just to take the pictures, but to connect what she calls map twins. She's got, you know, she's she looks at the address. So Chicago is set up on a grid and you've got, um, you know, your zero, zero coordinates your, that tell you east and west and north and south. So she has her folks that she's taking a picture of their home on the, you know, one like 6300 South Halsted. And then she'll look at the same, like if you were to fold the map in half, those two points with me, and you would, you know, they would they would match up with 6300 North Halsted. So she's, you know, looking at, you know, the home that's in, you know, Inglewood or a South Side community versus a home that is on the North Side. And it's like, whoa, why do these houses look so incredibly different? But the other funny part about the, you know, looking at her project and just my experience as a Chicagoan is how the housing stock is the same. Right, right. <laughs> it's the same cause of two flats, three flats bungalows on the south side that you will find on the north side. But you can see that there's so many communities that have gone, you know, have not been able to keep up with the repairs on their properties. Whereas the north side, I mean, it looks like you stepped into some kind of, you know, amazing fairy tale. You know, I think about any time that I've kind of walked through some of these communities, even with my children, sometimes we'll go up just to kind of explore different parks or different neighborhoods. And they're like, wow, why can't we have this, you know, where we live? And it kind of like it really hurts. And so Tamika's work um, does a wonderful job of illustrating that and helping folks who are not from the South and the West Side to recognize that, hey, this is what we're faced with. Y'all have the same exact kind of house. You got a bungalow, a three-bedroom bungalow. I have a three-bedroom bungalow. Why are, do our houses look so different? Why are the value, the, the, the value of our homes are different? You know, Why is the street maintenance Why is the street, why? right, why is the the style of the street lights different like i've seen some really pretty street lights on the north side when you come to the south side they're pretty basic you know so like why why don't we have the more you know attractive features why are why do i have to literally drive if whatever it is that i want with the exception of this wonderful boardwalk that's been you know developed on 75th street but anything else that i want i have to drive to like, I don't live in a community that's easy for me to walk to things. And why is that? Why is it harder for me to get to transit? <laughs> why is it, you know, why, you know, there's so many whys 
about our built environment. And of course, we, it all stems back to, you know, racist policies. Um, but like, what do we do now? We know like Tanika has fully laid it out for us. Th- these are the things that are happening. OK, wake up and do something. Um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely, you know, encourage any and everyone to, to to check out her work on that. So she not only documented this in stunning visual ways, but she then eventually brought the two homeowners as any any chance she could brought them together. And so you mentioned the map twins, but I hope people understand and check out for themselves how powerful um, this project has been. And I mentioned the street maintenance because you might have a planner or just a resident who's like, well, your house isn't nice because you didn't keep it up, right? Like someone could have a really oversimplified um, and judgmental view of why a particular house looks the way that it does or is valued the way it is. But once you start talking about neighborhoods and streets and parks and businesses and amenities, it's ob- it's obvious it's not only everybody's concern, but planners in particular, I would argue, have a special responsibility um, to address past harms and use an equity lens in their work wherever possible. Absolutely. So what do you think the field of planning is getting right these days? What inspires you? I think to, you know, kind of the theme of this conversation, you know, thinking about equity and kind of being in this new space of equity. I think that um, there's a lot more efforts being made uh, in planning, Um to really make sure that equity is a principle of the work that's being done. I'll speak to CMAP, you know, as an example of this, because um, they have done a really wonderful job of really putting equity at the forefront, you know, just kind of restructuring some things internally, you know, kind of looking at the work, the um, different, um, the process that they go through to, for their local technical assistance program, um, they, they are being a lot more intentional than they had in the past. And I, I am so thrilled that these things are happening. Um, I think that there's a lot of planning, just in the planning space, I think that, you know, planners are starting to see that we have a huge, you know, impact on all of this stuff that, you know, I don't think people were seeing before. Um, and it's it's unfortunate that all of these events of 2020 had to shot, be, you know, the reason why, you know, there's been all this attention on equity. Um, and I also question whether or not some of this stuff is altruistic or not. But, you know, just knowing that there are a lot, there's a lot more emphasis on it. And, you know, even in just the way that, company policies have been restructured and, um, you know, even in job postings, you know, there there's this desire to see more people who have the experience in the equity space. Um, it's clear that we've gotten to a point where, yeah, hey, it's time. It's time for us to really consider these things. Um, I'll even say for, you know, differently, you know, just my my experience with APA Illinois, um, there's a lot more uh, work that's being done in that space as well. And and it 
I'm not going to say that it was something that happened easily. You know, there, I know that I had to put uh, in a little bit of a fight to make sure that um, some things with our chapter were being done. Um, and I, I, I won't get into a lot of the details around that, although I really want to because it's Black History Month. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, just basically, you know, there's, we, there, a group of myself and some other uh, Black women planners, we wanted to make, see some change in the APA Illinois chapter. And we sought that out and we, you know, worked on, you know, campaigning around like, hey, how are we going to make sure that our board is more diverse, like truly diverse and actually not not just diverse in, um, you know, the types of planning experiences on the board, but also like the people and the culture. And um, so we were very intentional about this past election cycle. And we made sure that there were um, more women of color and people of color to actually choose from on the ballot. And I'm happy to say that four out of the five um, women of color that were on the ballot got voted in onto, you know, the executive board as well as the committees. And so, um, you know, that's that's huge. That's that's one way that you, we can make change in our profession is is just making it known that, hey, there's a problem here and we need to we needed to address it. And we did that. Um, you know, there's a lot more work to be done, but, um, you know, I'm excited to be part of that and uh, look forward to seeing more change happen. On that, what would you like to see happening more in planning? Um, I honestly, you know, I'm very much just in love with being in the youth space, like just making sure that our young people are able to contribute, like fully contribute to this planning work. Because at the end of the day, you know, we're planning for 15, 20, 30 years out, I'm gonna be old by the end, you know, 30 years, I'm, I'm gonna be, you know, somebody's grandma. So <laughs> hopefully retired, you know, but I want young people to, to be able to learn what I'm learning. The earlier they can learn it, the earlier they can pick it up and the earlier that they can get involved and actually lead these efforts that they are going to be experiencing. Um, I, I just feel like there's no better way that a planner can pass a torch. You know, we need to be passing the torch to our young people. And when I say young people, you know, I'm definitely, you know, of course our college age folks, but I'm talking about like our, our little ones, like these, you know, I think about, I have an eight-year-old son and I'm always talking to him about this kind of stuff. And People, you know, disregard how intelligent young people are. These little kids are super smart. They they know stuff. <laughs> and if you just have a conversation with them, they're listening and they get it. You know, you can't use all the planning jargon with them. But I mean, you can explain these things in, in simple terms and they get it. And so um, I just really think it's important for us to make sure that we, if we have the opportunity to interact with young people that we are doing them justice. I I also should say that I'm on the board for Territory as well, Territory Chicago, which is a youth-focused organization that works with kids on 
planning, you know, just kind of understanding the planning realm and then also like urban design and architecture. Um, it's a really important organization to me because we this is a group of students who are primarily Chicago public school students. And there was nobody on their board who actually attended Chicago public schools. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, you know what? I think I need to be part of that because I know the experience of growing up here in the city, growing up in communities that were disinvested, going, you know, to these schools that, you know, were also very much disinvested. Um, and they needed someone that they could look to that had a similar experience somewhere in that space. So I'm really happy to be able to do that too. Yes, I'm glad you did a shout out to Territory. We covered Folded Maps, both important organizations folks should check out. Anything else you're reading, watching, listening to? It can be planning related or it can be just for fun. We're still real people, right? <laughs> yeah, I um I listen to more music than I do podcasts, but I will um say that one of my favorite podcasts is The Streets Are Planning. That one's a good one. What I'm reading right now, um, what I'm trying to read right now, because it's hard to like really sit down and, and t- take in a full book. Um, but I do like audiobooks. But <laughs> um, some of my actual physical books that I'm trying to get through are ones called Race and Modern Architecture, A Critical History from the Enlightenment to the Presence. And um, this was actually a gift from someone who wanted to make sure that more women of color had access to this book. So I'm really excited um, about digging into this one. Um, Another, a friend of mine, uh, Deborah Douglas, she recently released this book. It's called U.S. Civil Rights Trail. So it basically follows, it's kind of like a new age green book, I guess. It's a um, just kind of, pointing out different um, places to travel across the United States um, and and with the lens of civil rights. And then the final book is called Family Properties, um, and it's by Beryl Satter. Um, This book is actually the inspiration behind um, the color tax documentary. So this this book really talks about the struggle of, of race and real estate um, and how that transformed Chicago and all of that. So it's a really good read. Um, so, yeah, those are my recommendations. <laughs> sound great. If people want to learn more about you and your work or connect, where can they go? I am in the process of developing a website. It's not live yet, um, but it will. It the URL is oururbandreams.com. <laughs> and it is a. Um, it really just going to be a landing page for to kind of point to the different projects that I've been involved in, and um, I might develop a blog. I'm not too sure yet um, about how far I'm going to take it. But um, but yeah, that that will be my website. Um, and then as far as social media, folks can um, check me out on Twitter at My Urban Dreams. And then of course, LinkedIn. So Katanya Ravi, search me. <laughs> Katanya, I want to thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been great. Yes, it's been wonderful. It was an honor and a pleasure 
um, as always, Courtney, to chat with you. And um, thank you so much for the invitation to have this conversation. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org.